Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megyn Kelly. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show. Joining me today, the one and only Wolf of Wall Street, Jordan Belfort. In the 1980s and 90s, Jordan ran one of the most successful brokerage firms in Wall Street history also one of the craziest. (laughs) He lived a life of luxury with money, yachts, women, and drugs, but it could not last forever. Soon the FBI would catch up um, and catch on to a multi-million dollar pump and dump stock manipulation scheme that would land Jordan in federal prison for 22 months. He would later write a New York Times bestselling book, the Wolf of Wall Street, and soon Hollywood would come knocking, and A-list actors would launch a bidding war for the movie rights. Leonardo DiCaprio would go on to portray Jordan in the now very famous and high-grossing film. It's incredible life and incredible life lessons that Jordan has gotten along the way, and today he is my guest, and we'll discuss it all. Jordan, thank you so much for being here. Thanks. It's a pleasure. Okay, so uh, I'm all I'm. I'm I saw Wolf, Wolf of Wall Street when it came out in 2013, and now I've read the book and uh, have been following you on Twitter. And I love your inspirational messages. You really have taken a lot of these life lessons to heart. And one of the things that attracted me to your messaging was your very anti-victim mentality. I mean, you know, you you own everything that you've done and have been through and have been really open about it, but you also haven't lost touch with the drive that it takes to make all the money that you made, some legally, some not legally, (laughs) but you haven't lost touch with what it takes to be successful and to get ahead of the other guy. And so I want to get to all of that because that's that's part of who you are as well. Let's start at the beginning, though. So you're a kid from Bayside, Queens. You did not grow up rich or poor, right? About middle class, would you say? Yeah. And your parents were what? Well, my parents were both CPAs. um, And you know, it's interesting because that you think, well, wow, both are CPAs, professionals. You'd probably be upper middle class, maybe even, you know, lower wealthy. Right. And but my parents really struggled uh, growing up and um, kind of didn't realize that till I was about 10. And when I was 10, I remember it's a funny story. I wanted to buy a, a pair of Pumas because they were you know, all their age back then. Right. Pumas mm-hmm. and by $19. And like, I think it was my birthday was coming up and I asked my mom, you know, I want Pumas. She's like, we can't afford it. I'm like, what do you mean you can't afford it? Like you, you, you and dad are professionals. You both, and they both were, my mother was like a trailblazer, just so you know, like in the fifties, back in Mad Men days, she was going into the city and working as a CPA. Um, and you know, at a big eight, it was a big eight back then accounting firm. And she was the, was the oldest woman in New York state to pass the bar when she was 68. So she's a, a real piece of work. My mom, right? She's Amazing. awesome. And, um, but they had no money. I was like, well, and she sat me down and she showed me, you know, what was going on. She showed me they made X and here are our expenses and, you know, our rent and so forth. And um, at the end of the month, we had a little bit left over. It's for a college fund. And I was appalled because I was like, it didn't <laughs> add up to me. You're like, yeah, like, like it just it was something seemed like it was off. How could two such brilliant people, hardworking people, educated people, industrious people have be broke? It didn't make sense. And it wasn't long after I think it started to occur to me there were certain other elements that were necessary to achieve financial success. And one of them was taking risk. My parents were completely risk averse, mm. depression mentality. And also they were really against any type of sales or marketing type ideas. Mm. They just 
stunned them and thought they were evil. And because of that, they were never able to use their services or market their services, their wares, so to speak. So they worked for other people. They worked for a paycheck and they struggled badly. So I think a lot of that went into my makeup of like what it really means to, to succeed financially. It's not just about hard work. Hard work, of course, is required. It's not just about education. Education is usually important, not always, but you know, at least self-education of some sort. But there's other components involved. And, and, and one of those is going to certainly be, you know, taking some risks, working for yourself, or at least being in an industry like sales where you can almost work for yourself and risk taking. So very important lesson I learned very young. So how did you understand, like, how did you become such a good salesman? Because if, if you read up on Jordan Belfort, you realize one of the things that made the difference in your life is you yeah. know how to sell. And it's not that easy for the average person. I think a lot of people are more introverted. They don't want to put themselves out there. They don't want to have to sort of I don't know, make themselves feel vulnerable by asking somebody to buy something from them. So how did you get so good at that? Part of it, I think, is a, God, is a God-given gift. Seriously, I mean, I, I think that we all, all of us, each person possesses certain gifts and certain, you know, you know, deficits, right? I think in my personal genetic makeup and the combination of nature and nurture, I ended up naturally being very, very talented at sales. But then I trained myself and honed that skill over years and years of hard work and selling to a razor's edge. And then I found myself in a position very young when I started my firm where I was teaching a methodology of sales that was intuitive to me. It didn't have a name back then. And it didn't, it was working real well until I tried to go to a much more difficult type of sale. And when I was faced with this difficult sale, I could do it. Yet the people that worked for me couldn't, and it forced me to come up with a new way of training salespeople, which is really what what allowed me to understand my own sales process much better. So, it, you know, by almost by becoming a teacher, it made me a far better actual student. I mean, you know, a salesperson myself. Yeah, so, think about uh, it. What happened? Uh, there's a there's a moment in your book, late in the book, where your daughter uh, says, you were supposed to take me to the Blockbuster. You promised to take me to the Blockbuster video. And you say, I had no, I had promised her nothing of the sort, but I appreciated the negotiating tactic. Start from a position of strength. Assume the sale is already done. <laughs> I thought it was, oh, yeah. She's, and also the tonality. Like, Dad, you, you told me we're going to Blockbuster, right? Like, I'm like, what? <laughs> like, almost what, where she phrases a declarative as a question. It's good. I learned. Yeah. I understand. That's how I'm going to pitch my next big guest. You promised me you'd come on. What? Who the hell are you? Um, okay. So you you were a worker when you were a kid. You'd had the paper route and you did all the stuff that, you know, a lot of successful people I know have done that you, were, you did not sit on the couch watching reruns of Little House on the Prairie like somebody else I, I know uh, when I see in the mirror. Um, then you did not immediately go to Wall Street. You decided that you were going, you wanted to make money and you decided to be a dentist. And then tell us what happened your first day at dental school. Uh, yeah, that was really, uh, you know, about, uh, I think it's a reflection of belief systems that, you know, we all have infused into us by our parents, society, our peer group. And, you know, my mother, uh, my parents are just very highly educated people. And to them, it was like, you know, there's only no one noble way to become wealthy. And that is, you know, doctor, dentist. And, and, and like, you know, at the time, if you asked me at the age of, 21, you know, what do you want to be for a living? I'd say, I want to be rich for a living. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. So always <laughs> playing in my head, like doctor, dentist, rich. So I was, now my uncle was a dentist and he was very successful. And I was like, well, my uncle's a dentist four years. 
medical school will be another 10. I'm going to kill myself in 10 years. So I said, I'll go to dental school. So I applied very well in scores. I got in. And the first day of dental school, Dean stands up in front of the audience. It was Baltimore College of Dental Surgery in Maryland. And he's, he says, you know, welcome to the Baltimore College of Dental Surgery. She's proud to be here. Dentistry is a wonderful profession. And he goes, but, but let me say this. The golden age of dentistry is over. If you're here to make money, you're probably in the wrong place. I'm like, what the hell? I'm in, I'm in the wrong place. And I got up and I literally walked out my first day and I dropped out. Yeah. That that too is such a moment. It tells us a lot about you because I would think, I mean, honestly, having been to law school and practice law, you at that point your ego's into it. You've told everybody you're going to dental school. You have some sort of, you know, skin in the game. So the the fact that you got up and walked out does say something about you. Like you know. It doesn't take you long to make a decision about your life and your future and where, where you're going to do, what you're going to do next. That's an important thing that you're hitting on here because one of the biggest mistakes that I think people make, and we all make, even though I still make it, but I try to stop myself from making it, is, is that it's not just ego. It's, it's part ego. It's part, it's just part when you get caught up in something, you're in like, you can't see the forest or the trees. Like, you know, anyone on the outside would say, what are you doing? No, it's not working. You know, it's time to make a move, get out, go do something else. So many people will stay with something to a point where it's obvious it's not working for them. It's obvious it's not going to get them the outcome they want, but they sit, they feel like they put time into their invested in it. They've done things. They've told people they're doing things. So they feel they have to be consistent with that yet to their own detriment, they stay and they, that other opportunities pass them by. And I think that's a very, very powerful thing to, to you know, for all entrepreneurs, actually success-oriented people, is to always be looking at your surroundings and what's going on and just being honest. Just saying, you know, is this working or is this not? I don't believe you just keep trying and quitting. I'm not like that at all. But at a certain point, it's, you have to get realistic with yourself and say, you know what? I should be making a pivot here and trying something else because what I'm doing is simply not working. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, and you had your eyes on the prize. You knew your overall goal was to get rich. It was not to be a dentist. De- that was just a means to an end. And when you found out it wasn't the means, you were like, peace out. So you you not knowing exactly what's next, you leave. And then the way I hear it, you heard about a kid from your neighborhood who was making a million bucks on Wall Street and the light bulb went off and you were like, I too am going to Wall Street. But it's not that easy. One step, you miss one step. What? Oh, the meat? Is it the meat salesman? Yes. Yes, I actually, so this is a very important part of the story is that, you know, when I dropped out of dental school, I answered a blind ad in the newspapers, newspapers back then with ads, right? Not the internet. And it was for a sales job and it said company vehicle, a thousand, make a thousand week company vehicle. I was like, wow, that sounds pretty good, right? And uh, I went down, I didn't realize that the company vehicle was a meat truck and it turned out it was selling meat and seafood <laughs> door to door. Right. And I was like, all right, well, whatever, I'll give it a shot. And that was the that was the first real sales job that I had. I'd always been selling stuff, you know, hard work, going blanket to blanket on Jones Beach, making a lot of money selling ices as a kid. I was the kid with the paper out. I was the kid with the with the lemonade stand. But this was a, a magic show as even I did when I was younger. But this was the first real, you know, job and sales job where it's like about influence and persuasion. And and my first day on that job, I broke the company record. I just, I had a natural ability to sell. And that was really how I, I, it got started is like, you know, me knowing that I could really close at a high level. And after about two weeks um, of breaking the records, I said, hmm, let me just try to open up a business myself. I always had had that entrepreneurial edge and I started my own meat business. And over the next year, I built it up to 26 trucks. 
Um, and you know, train and I trained all those employees how to sell door to door, and we're selling door to door. So that was really the pro- the proving ground for everything else that came after. And then ultimately, I made every mistake that a young entrepreneur can make. I was overexpanding. I was undercapitalized. I was growing on credit. It was a really poorly run business. Like in the, you could look at that as a textbook for how not to run a business, right? And I went bankrupt and I lost everything. And that was when I heard at the same time about this kid I grew up with. His name is Michael Falk. And and um and I heard he's making a million dollars a year on Wall Street. And like, just think back, it's 1986, 87, like a million dollars a year. It seemed like an impossibly large number. I had $10 in my pocket at the time. And I didn't believe it when I heard it. And about a week later, I went to the local park. We all hung out in Bayside. And um, he pulls up in a Ferrari, you know, and, and a beautiful suit and a beautiful girl. Like, I'm like, I'm like, and this guy was not, just to understand, he was not like this kid that was voted most likely to succeed in high school. He was kind of the weird kid growing up. So I was like, I was like Michael, what, what happened? He's like, oh, I'm, I'm a stockbroker. Here's the things about, about stockbrokers, Megan. You know, if I was saying, hey, Megan, what'd you make last day? You'd be like, excuse me? Like, what did I earn last day? It's a little bit forward of you, right? You would like, you know, ask a doctor, hey, what'd you earn last like, What? But ask a stockbroker, like, I made a million dollars. Just, they just offer the information. Like, so the first stockbroker's calling card, hey, I made a million dollars here. What are you doing? You know? <laughs> so I was like, he goes, I made a million too. He goes, next year I'll make two million. I was like, and I said to myself in that moment, what you probably said to yourself, many of your listeners have said, if this idiot can make a million, I can make 10. That, that was exactly what I thought, you know? Yeah. And that was really started my quest to go down to Wall Street. Mm-hmm. That, what you say is so true. Having lived in New York for almost 20 years, it, it, people are the same way about rents. What are you paying in rent? How many square feet? Let me see your apartment. Take me around. As soon as they walk in, like, oh, great. You show them everything. You show them your closet, your bathroom. It's just like you put it all out there that we all live in, in different terms when you're in New York City. Um, okay, so you get the, the first big job you get is at LS. Rothschild. And what was the messaging from your superiors there at this? This is the, the portion of the movie in which Matthew McConaughey is portrayed as your boss. Great scenes. That character was spectacular. It was amazing. Yeah. So so that yeah. was. Um, so what was the messaging to you then? How did they see you? So I uh, was really pretty funny. So I, I was interviewed by the, the, the manager of that office and, um, you know, the Ella Rothschild office, a big, well-respected firm. And I knew I had to stand out because it was like 50 kids lined up for the interview. It was the bull market of the 80s. And when I went to this interview, I, I started pitching him to stop. Like I'm not even really knowing what I was saying, but I was, I knew I was really a sound and good, a good tonality. So I started saying, hey, I'm going to, you know, this stock is, gonna, I, started, I forgot what I said exactly. But the point is I was pitching him a stock and he's like, whoa, whoa, he's like, stop. I'm like, what? He goes, I, I've never met anyone like him. He goes, I'll tell you, it goes, either one of two things are going to happen to you. Either you're going to become the most famous broker in Wall Street history, or you're going to end up in jail. Well, the guy was a genius. He was right on both accounts <laughs> and he hired me, right? And that was how I got my job. And I, my first day of walking into that boardroom, I was like, I heard the mighty roar of the Wall Street boardroom. I was, I was blown away by it. The fear, the greed, the cursing, the screaming. I mean, it was unbelievable. Just the, the, the energy in this room. And I and for six months, I watched all these other brokers selling. I wasn't licensed yet. I had to go through a licensing process. And and the messaging was, you know, it, let's just say it was very much like Matthew McConaughey said, even at a big firm. I think one of the worst, probably one of the worst kept secrets and probably the dirty little secret of Wall Street is that most of it's really not in the best interest of the client when it comes to because you know the fact is is that 
most of this whole machine is not necessary of stockbrokers and analysts because you better just buying the S&P and holding it. That's a separate issue. But, um, you know, it was churn and burn them. You know, let's churn them and burn them and, and, and move the money around and, you know, you know, close at all costs. It wasn't lie to the client. It wasn't about lying or, 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 or you know, or like, you know, Bernie Madoff stuff, but it was about getting their money, churning, burn, and and you come first. And and um, I was pretty shocked when I heard that, but you know that was that was the theme. Was it? Is it true that the the your boss at the time took you out and flat out encouraged you to drink more, consider drugs, consider hookers or masturbation several times a day? Like, I mean, is that did that really happen? Yeah, but like, yes, the answer is yes, but more like, <laughs> but more. In other words, he was just a, he was a very funny guy. He was just a, he was that sort of guy that like he was you know he would do anything for a laugh. He was, he was a very clever, funny person. So he was saying, but you know, one thing that was very prevalent, which I I don't know if it still is today, but cocaine back then was like wildly prevalent everywhere. Mm-hmm. And you know, the the idea that people were doing cocaine during that that was like standard operating procedure back at that period of time. I, I think it's gotten better. I hope it's gotten better. Um, but that was certainly standard operating procedure. And I think also was, we were probably all seen from various other movies as well, that prostitutes, hookers on Wall Street was also very much standard procedure. But the message really grim was just like, you know, smile and dial and have fun. And basically, you know, you, the, the idea here is like, and I really, you know, I came from a really honest, good family. And I was like, so can we make our clients money? They're like, nah, it's like, it's like not, was not like the objective. It wasn't like the, it wasn't the objective to lose their money. Like you, you would never want to lose someone money because it just does, there's no reason to want to do that. Even at Stratton, one of the biggest misgivings in the movie, he thinks that like we tried to lose the money. That's just nonsense. We never, you would never try. You make more money when your clients make money. It's just very difficult sometimes when interests are not aligned, yeah. which they often on Wall Street. It's like you're trying to lose someone money. So that yeah. wasn't, he didn't say, let's just rip the client. It wasn't that. It's more like just, just, you know, churn them and burn them, baby. That sort of it, stuff. If you have to choose between yourself and the client, you choose yourself is basically the approach. So, um, so Jordan winds up going and we'll get to this in one second. We're going to take a quick break, but he, L.S. Rothschild collapses uh, when Black Monday hits in 1987 uh, and that career quickly dies. Uh, but Jordan, you won't be surprised, would not be stopped in his biggest and now most infamous chapter was yet to come. That's where we're going to pr- pick it up right after this quick break. And we'll play some clips from the award winning movie as well. Jordan, so uh, Black Monday comes, and that's the end of Rothschild. And I, you must have been thinking at the time your Wall Street career too. Yeah, it was pretty shocking because after six or seven months of being a cold caller, like just you know dialing the phone and passing it to someone else because I didn't have my license yet. When I finally passed my Series Seven, got my license. My first day, literally my first day as a broker, that was on the phone dialing for myself. The market crashed five hundred eight points. Mm-hmm. Rothschild is you know essentially out of business by the end of the day but it took a couple of weeks after they shut down permanently but they were already like that was it they were done that first day so it was really really sad and i remember the brokers were walking around saying oh damn the game is over i'm like what do you mean the game is over i didn't get to play i was a slave like they're like oh no the game's over then that day and down on the uh, ground floor was the uh the newsstand the new york post like the death of wall street all brokers will be cab drugs I'm like i'm oh, sure stay in dental school right it was really unbelievable <laughs> When I got right. home, I was my first wife. I've not done great in the wife department. I've got a few marriages, but I, think I got it right this time, hopefully. And uh, but 
she unfortunately didn't know the market crash. She'd taken our last dollars. We were really struggling and she bought a bottle of champagne. And, and you know, I walked through the door. She's like, how did you break the rate? Because everyone thought I'd do so well as a broker. I was like, oh, I no. give it up. And she said that last like buddy on the champagne. I, I collapsed in her arms and started to cry. I, was, I literally, you know, we all take that punch. I'm sure you've been there. You know, you're a, you're a, you, you're a mover shaking yourself. You're, you have ups and you have downs. And like, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes when things are going bad, you think the world is just against you. God's against you. You think you have the Midas touch and reverse. Everything you touch turns to shit, basically. It was like, really, I, I really was like, I had this moment where like, I just like, was like collapsed. And I just said, I can't, I can't do this anymore. You know, I should have just been like the normal route, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. that lasted about five minutes because I didn't have longer than that, couldn't pay the rent. So I, after I had a good cry, we sat there, we opened up the help wanted section and, and we just started looking for other jobs like outside of Wall Street, like sales. And, and after about a few minutes, she stumbled on some ad. It was like stockbrokers like in Long Island and it's part time, full time. There was so much that didn't make sense. But like, stockbrokers on the line like this is back in the late 80s where there was you know everything was on wall street and it was part-time like part-time stockbrokers like you know and then when i answered i called the phone they're like investor center i'm like whoa I'm like, it was like a gruff voice i'm like what about morgan stanley or goldman it's like investor center i never even heard you know it sounded like a weird name when i and they asked me to come down for and do the next day i went down and i walked in i was like just shocked I, it was like nothing in the office that you know reeked of wealth success or wall street it was just like it was going back to like the the caveman days it was like no no computers on the desks uh it was young kids in jeans and sneakers they were they were just you know cursing like but a different type of cursing at the clients like and like lying through their teeth and i'm like what are you guys doing it like oh you know imagine we sell penny stocks and i'm like what's a penny stock like i like, legitimately did not know what a penny stock was other than that it traded at a lower price. I didn't understand the context, you know, you know what it was really all about. And, and in that moment, you know, there was a scene in the movie where I say, you know, is this legal? Is that legal? And he's like, well, you know, that's not true. You know what he said? Of course it's legal. We have, we have the, the, So we actually like, have this clip teed up from the movie, um, uh, the, the fake you <laughs> portraying this moment. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, here it is. Yeah, they're penny stocks. You know, uh, companies that can't get listed on NASDAQ, they don't have enough capital, their shares trade here. Is, is this uh, is this stuff regulated, or are you guys, what are you doing here? Uh, sort of. Sort of? <laughs> Jesus Christ, the spread on these is huge. Yeah, and that's the point. That's What's your name again? My Jordan Belfort. Jordan, what do you get on a blue chip stock? I make 1%. I did make one percent. Pink sheets, it's fifty. It's fifty percent. Fifty percent commission. Yep. For what? It's our markup for our services. So good. So you get the dollar signs in your eyes at that point. Like fifty is a lot better than one. You know. The, the most important thing, and I, I do, I mentor a lot of young people. I do a big events around the world, small events, and there's a lot of people in their, you know, teens and twenties. And, and one of the things I always say to them is, you know, be really careful. That seems very misleading, and I wish they wouldn't have done that. But that's one of the, you know, it's just, it's, it's an amazing movie. But I just think that it's not accurate in the sense that if he would have said that to me, I would have run out the door. Like I was a really good kid that never broke. And it wasn't like my nature to go in and say, oh, I don't know if this is, maybe it's legal. I'd say, oh, bye-bye, I'll find something that's legal. But that's not what he said. He said the opposite. He said, 
Of course. What do you mean? We, we are SEC. We report to see NASD member. So because, and the reason that's so important is because right now, today in the world, for all you people listening, especially young people, you're going to find yourself walking into offices and businesses where they're ripping people off. And what? And as a young person, like what I was, you'll just you assume it's okay because if it wasn't, it wouldn't be happening. They would have shut it down. Either some regulator would have made it stop, but it's not true. These things often take many years to be shut down, if ever. So you know, just be careful that if your alarm goes off in your stomach and like it's like not legit, it's probably not. Like, don't just mm-hmm. assume they say, "Oh, of course, of course it is," or if they say, "You oh, maybe run the other way." That's my mm-hmm. advice. Mm-hmm. I've had I've had jobs in the past where you see ethics compromised here and then there and then you detect a pattern and you have to ask yourself, do I stay or do I go? Right. Like that's a one off can happen anywhere. But when you re- once you realize, oh, this is not an ethical place to be, it's a, it's a character test. And actually, it's one of the questions I have for you, because I'll tell you, I know a guy in New York um, who he was arrested and he was accused of being kind of a mini Madoff and the the jury was hung when all was said and done. So that was a good result for him. But it did come out later that he had cheated on his Series 7. Uh, he had had another guy go in and take it for him. And yeah, I thought was- to myself, is so like these early ethical compromises, you know, how often do they result in just the loss of ethics, right? That, they're gone. Once you cross that line, it's tough to cross back over. You, 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 you know, one of the things I always say when I'm out there speaking, I say you can't be half pregnant when it comes to ethics. It doesn't work that way. It would be nice if it did, but it doesn't. I'll tell you why it doesn't. It's because, you know, like, and my story illustrates this perfectly. You know, I was doing everything right. When I started my firm, I was doing everything right. And I had this one moment where like I, I was faced with making a decision of taking a very large amount of cash from someone. And the person said, everyone's doing it. I knew it was wrong. I was like, well, you know, and I, I figured it was being done. I knew it was, I wasn't the only person that had done this, but I knew it was wrong. I said, well, you know what? I'll do this once and then I won't do anything again. But once you take that first step over the line, what happens is your line moves slightly to the wrong side, a slight bit. So next time, and you do things right for a while, but next time you step over the line, you'll step a bit further mm-hmm. and then a bit further still and through these tiny, almost imperceptible nudges towards the dark side, you can very quickly find yourself doing things you thought you would never do, associating with people you never thought you'd associate with, and it all seems perfectly okay. You don't mm. think it's wrong because your line has moved. Your morality, your ethics, your compass, it's just little nudges, and before you know it, you're it's insanely off. Like It's like when you dip your toe into a, a piping hot bathtub, right? You're like, oh my God, it's so hot. And then Five minutes later, you're submerged under the water and it feels perfect, right? When I was a kid, I was like, oh, I guess the water cooled down. No, the water didn't cool down. You just got used to it. It's like, you know, and that's what happens. And, you know, it happened to me so profoundly that when I I got my first subpoena from the SEC for like something I wasn't really even guilty of, it's just, I I, I went and vomited. Like I was so, I was like, oh my God, my life is over. I got a subpoena. What am I going to do? It was a civil subpoena. And I, I was just so nervous. I was devastated. My life is over. Two years later, I'm like, through the papers, like, you don't, you, you become, it's so weird how that happens, you know? Yeah. And very, very careful with your ethics. And I, and, I, and, and the, the really sad part is that, you know, 
you make more money by being ethical. It just takes a little bit longer. But the big money is by being ethical. That's yeah. the sad part. And p- picking back up on, on your book, uh, that same kid who vomited when he first got the SEC subpoena, you, you write, would wind up bugging the SEC. <laughs> how, how did you do that? It's real easy. I mean, it was, they, they, were in, they came to my office and they were sitting in my conference room for, for months and months and months on end. For what reason? I have no other. You know, let's say it's a different world back then. They didn't have like computers the way they had. So I guess they had to sift through mounds of paperwork. So I guess they decided it was easier to come to us. So, you know, you had all these spy shops back then that sold all these like, cool little a plug that looked like a that you know looked like a plug. And it was actually a listening device, and and we put that device in and see what they were saying, which really wasn't that much. And uh, yeah, and then we actually got caught doing that, believe it or not, because my partner, when he was one day when he was incredibly high, he like they said something bad about him, and he ran. Me. I heard what you said. Oh no. <laughs> There's a great scene. Um, so Bo Deedle would become your like chief investigator, sort of protector. And a lot of my listeners may know him from my time at Fox. And, and he's on Fox. He, he was all the time with Sean Hannity. Such a colorful character. Um, I was just telling my friend the great story about Bo. He's just so funny. And there's a he ran for mayor a couple of years ago in New York. And I can't remember the context in which he said it, but it was basically it was in a magazine article. And he was talking about how he's going to clean up New York City, I think. And he's like, I'm going to clean up this city uh, from Harlem all the way down to that slut in New York Harbor. I'm like, does he mean the Statue of Liberty? <laughs> He's talking about the Statue of that slut in New York Harbor. <laughs> way of, of communicating, but with everything has annotation at the end. You know, mm-hmm. I have my lunchitation and my uh, meditation. <laughs> and I love it. And you, you write about how um, this I didn't know about Bo. He's never done it with me. But he calls the people around him Bo. I did not know that. Yeah, he calls everyone Bo. So it's like, <laughs> he's a... He's a He's like a larger than life character. You know, he's yes. always a very good friend of mine and I respect him. And, uh, you know, he just did, he did a lot of good stuff. He personally had people, you know, like, you know, uh, security guards and he, he, did, he did a good job for me. Yeah. So he tried to help you, but he, he, w- he was quick to tell you, p- please do not try to bug the FBI agents. Do not try to tape them. Do not try to bug offices or briefcases or anything like that. Okay. So you go from the penny stock place. How does Stratton Oakmont, it's got a great name and that's by design, but how does Stratton Oakmont, which was officially born in 1989, come about? So, so Stratton was actually started, Stratton Securities was started in 1979, I think. And um, it was a, a trading firm um, that just, you know, did a lot of interbank trading with insurance companies, just traders, right? Um, and then when the crash came, the firm basically lost all its equity and it was teetering, um, you know, by thread. Um, and right around the time I decided to open up my own brokerage firm, um, you know, Stratton became available that you could like use their licenses with what was called an OSJ, an Office of Supervisory Jurisdiction. So um, I jumped on that bandwagon and um, that's how it started with Stratton. Uh, after a short time, another firm named Oakmont became available. And I wanted to, there were some things with that, about that firm. I like that a good clearing arrangement. The trader was uh, more professional than what I had. So I bought Oakmont and that's how I came to Stratton Oakmont. Okay. So you wind up going around and hiring a bunch of guys and they're, these are I don't know how you want to describe them, but I, I salt would, of the earth. Them barely post adolescent nincompoops, but in a loving, fun way, you know? <laughs> and you were their fearless leader who was up there like, let me show you how it's done. There's a famous scene in the movie in which you're talking to them about 
selling and, you know, how they got to get out there and sell. And and they did respect you and they were very loyal to you and they all looked up to you. Here's just a clip of you. Uh, well, Leonardo DiCaprio as you motivating the team. There is no nobility in poverty. I have been a rich man and I have been a poor man and I choose rich every fucking time. Because at least as a rich man, when I have to face my problems, I show up in the back of a limo wearing a $2,000 suit and a $40,000 gold fucking watch. If anyone here thinks I'm superficial or materialistic, go get a job at fucking McDonald's because that's where you fucking belong. It taps right into Wall Street at the time and the guys and it was, you know, F everybody and it's us against them and be a killer. And that worked. It worked very well. That's, you know, that's a really uh, interesting scene because it um, it's true. I mean, that was, it comes from a speech that I kind of reconstructed when I wrote my book. And um, but that came later, that 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 mentality, like, when I, you know, let's just say what we were doing at that time was a little different than when the firm first started. I, you know, when the firm first started, we were selling penny stocks um, to average moms and pops like that other company was doing. And then I came with this idea to go to the richest 1% and just to call, you know, really rich people and sell them $5 stocks. So the, so the leap that, that really made Stratton Stratton was we weren't selling penny stocks. We were selling $5 stocks and we weren't calling average moms and pops. We were calling rich business owners. And that was also what forced me to come up with a new way of training salespeople. Cause what happened was, the, the way I had been training salespeople with the, with the first program, which was calling average moms and pops, it was very easy sale. It was more of an impulse sale, like, you know, a dollar and a dream, like a lotto ticket. And it was very different than what was happening when I actually had to go and call the richest 1% and sell them $5 stocks. And suddenly the kids that worked for me, which were kids that were not educated highly, did not naturally that intelligent. And also none of them possessed any, you know, Let's say there were no members of the Lucky Sperm Club and no Ivy League diploma. So mm-hmm. they couldn't close the rich people. And I had to come up with a new way of training salespeople. That was what really forced me to invent this new system that came to be known as the straight line. And it was the straight line system, this, this new way of training that allowed me to get these kids to close the, these wealthy one percenters. And also what you heard there was motivation. So, you know, there's always two sides to training. There's, you know, there's motivation and there's actual skills. So the secret was a combination of motivation and skills. I'm gonna stand you by right there because we're just, this is a good time for, for a quick pause, quick break, and much, much more on the opposite side of this with Jordan Belfort, the Wolf of Wall Street. Hollywood is under siege, covertly compromised by a global adversary. The same Hollywood that sold the American dream to the world is now making nightmares a reality. The American way of life is being censored by the Chinese Communist Party. Some films have scenes completely altered. Other films have lost their funding or been canceled altogether. Some actors have been banned from China for supporting human rights. Hollywood Takeover is a documentary brought to you by the Epoch Times, revealing how the CCP has infiltrated major movie studios. Join Chris Fenton, a former Hollywood executive, and Tiffany Meyer, an investigative news reporter, through their journey in exposing how the film industry gradually lost its integrity on its path to profits. Don't miss the most important documentary ever made about Hollywood. For a limited time, watch the first 10 minutes for free on HollywoodTakeover.com slash MK. That's HollywoodTakeover.com slash MK. 
So the straight line, what's the the other piece of the straight line? One is motivation and the other is actually how do you sell to really rich people? And in a nutshell, how is that? So the motivation is definitely part of the straight line. Like sort of, the, you know, there's two there's two sides to, to succeeding in anything. And we live in a world of duality. There's up, there's going to be down. Yes, no, start, stop. Even the digital world that allows us to communicate, you have a one, you have a zero, right? There's two sides to every coin. Same thing goes in success and sales. And we speak of sales, you know, there's the inner game of sales, success, and entrepreneurial success in the outer game. Inner game means your mindset, what's happening up here between your ears before you ever go out and try to close someone or start a business, whatever that might be. Then the outer world are the actual real world skills that allow you to accomplish what you want to accomplish. So, you know, in mindset, there's things like managing your emotional state. Make sure that you're in a positive, empowered emotional state, that you have belief systems that support you and that propel you to success and don't stop you from succeeding or cause you to pull back when you shouldn't. Beliefs like my parents had, where they thought that selling was evil, that marketing was evil, that any type of risk was a bad thing. Those are limiting beliefs when it comes to making money. So, you know, you could have the best entrepreneurial skill set and education like my parents did, like they had great education. But if you have that sort of belief system, it's going to stop you from achieving. So it, that's inner game as well. Then you have another thing which is called, you know, your vision focus. You know, what's your vision? Do you have a, a target that you're aiming for? Where do you want to be in five years from now? And why does it matter to you? Very important, you know, why you're, you know, why you do what you do. And mm-hmm. most people, they go, I want to make money. And it's not, it's not a why, you know, why is much more profound than that. It's typically to do with someone that you love unconditionally or a cause you believe in. It's not about you. It'll be about the people that you love or the community and, or something bigger than yourself. That's a real powerful why. And then lastly, on the inner game is something called your standards, you know, your, your personal standard, what you will not settle for less than, you know, a standard operates like a thermostat, you know, it's like your set point. Where do you burn? Where do you feel comfortable? Um, if you have low standards for making money, well, guess what? You know, it's like, it's like the, the furnace, if the thermostat set to a low level, the thermos shuts off pretty quickly. If the thermostat is set to a high level, it keeps going. So that's what your standards operate like. And all that's happening every second of every day, in your mind, and it's influencing what decisions you make, what you do, how you handle adversity, and and those things when they're wrapped into one empowered, you know, into one empowered, let's say, you know, lump, so to speak, where you're like literally, you know, you have this ability to just be positive and think positively and and focus on where you want to go in life. That sets you up for massive success in the outer world, which is now where you're strategies, your real world business and entrepreneurial and sales strategies take hold. For example, as a business owner, um, you know, there are certain skill sets that an entrepreneur must have this knowledge that you need. It's critical, mission critical knowledge. You know, and when I talk about entrepreneurship, I typically divide it into like these two sides. Like you need to learn how to, believe it or not, fail elegantly. Like how do you go into business and be wrong? And 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 because you're wrong more than you're right when you go into business, you're gonna, you know, be on the wrong side of the test more often than not. How do you maximize the, the lessons learned in the failures, but minimize the amount of money lost, time lost, so you can learn from it and move on and try again? And then that, that's failing elderly. It's crucial. Uh, you, the you, first you've, in- you've tweeted out, and I've heard you say before, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, mean, I love meeting people who know more than me because that's how you learn, right? Yes, yeah, so it's okay. Um, it's okay to fail. It's okay to fail. Do it well. Do it elegant, elegantly, and understand it's not so bad to be the one learning. Yeah, and, and also I think one of the you know one of the things I, I 
I think a quote I'm well known for, and something I say to my kids all the time, especially when they were younger, is like, you're not the failures of the, your past. You're the resources and the capabilities you glean from your past failures. You know, you get stronger mm-hmm. when you fail. If you learn from those failures, you don't become your failure. You don't start thinking you're the failure. Your failure is not you. It's a lesson learned and you, you grow stronger with each time you fail and both mentally and you learn from that. And that's what sets you up to succeed the next time. So I like that. Uh, failure means you're a risk taker. If you've got some failures behind you, it means you're a risk taker. If you haven't failed, then you probably haven't tried. Like, it's like, it's like, I don't know many people, even like someone like, if you look at someone like um, uh, Zuckerberg, who like you seemingly hasn't failed, but he did fail. He's had all these launches and things he's tried since then that haven't worked out. You know, it doesn't affect his, 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 his massive net worth and his core company, but everyone tries and fails. And it's what you do when you, when you try and fail that defines who you are. You know, how do you process that? Do you learn from it or do you let it paralyze you? And the worst is that you let it form limiting beliefs inside of you. Mm-hmm. Like you have a failure about, you know, in, in a business and you're like, oh, maybe I'm, I'm just not meant to be an entrepreneur. It's not who I am. And that's a massively problematic limiting belief. So it's an example of how you could fail and let it paralyze you versus, okay, I failed. Let me look soberly at this and say, why? What was missing here? What can I learn? How can I grow? And then when you try again, integrate those lessons from your failure into your next pass at success. And if you do that enough times, you surely will succeed um, and probably sooner than you think. So uh, it's a crucial part. And then also the other side of that is with with entrepreneurship. So there's failing elegantly and also succeeding wildly. What do you do when, when the idea is right? When you have an idea, you test it, and it's actually working better. Then you thought, how do you take a small idea and scale it? How do you turn a small business into a big business, a big business into a international business? And there's all these rules and strategies that are proven to work. And you need to know these as an entrepreneur. And they're all learnable. They're out there. The knowledge is for the taking. It's, it's a, an open world on the internet. So, so you're really, I, I would say, ignore that at your own peril. That's, that's entrepreneurship. The next skill set that's crucial in the outer game is, is marketing. How do you go out and identify who your best buyers are, your potential buyers, and how do you reach them in a cost-effective way? You know, there's the online marketing, which is very popular right now, and I'm sure it continue, will continue to be. It's things like social media, uh, Google ads, just, you know, all the things that we know and use online to reach people both in our local market and all over the world. Absolutely crucial. And those Skills are learnable, they're out there, and you can hire people if you don't have them yourself. And then there's the offline, the traditional TV, radio, uh, you know, knocking on doors, calling on the telephone. So that's marketing, and marketing brings people into your so-called sales funnel, your store, your website, whatever that might be. And then the next step is the one that I'm probably best known for is sales, persuasion. How do you take those people and close them? How do you get them to see the value of what you have to offer that yours is the best solution for them. How do you convince them to part with their hard-earned money now? That's mm-hmm. a, a, without that skill is very hard to make money. And then the last part of that is you know what I call MSI's multiple streams of income. And what do you do with your money once you make it? How do you put your money to work to make more money for you so you can ultimately retire and be wealthy? Meaning you know you don't have to just run around like a chicken with a head on trying to make the next dollar because your money's actually earning money for you. Those those are like this form one side, form the other. So inner game, outer game, eight things in all. If you know all eight of those things, you're going to end up being very successful. Like I promise you. 
You know, it's funny. Um, back in 2016, I actually wrote a book called Settle for More. And the the title was was from a saying, the only difference between you and someone you envy is you settled for less. And it, I actually got it from Dr. Phil. But right it's to your to the one of the points you made, right? Like you got to set the high goals. And if you set the low goals and you're sitting there feeling unhappy, that's on you. Well, you're probably the problem with most people in their goals, not, you know, people that don't succeed. The problem is that they not that they set their goals too high and miss them. They mostly set their goals too low and hit them. And then like, because the enemy of great is good. Because when you're feeling good or average, there's no pain, no uncomfortability. So you don't have any impetus to change. So it's like, you know, one of the most profound things I ever heard in the interview was from James Cameron. He was being interviewed after Avatar came out. And now he had like two out of the three multi-billion dollar blockbusters. And then, I, think, I think it was thinking Larry King was, forgot who it was. They rest in peace. They said, you know, James, how is it that you, one person has, you know, two of the biggest grossing movies of all time. He goes, well, when I go about planning this out, I'm thinking about it. I am shooting to, I'm looking to have a, Three billion dollar. I want to have the biggest multi billion dollar hit in my mind. So if I'm only half right, I'm still doing really well. Mm. He said goals so high that even if he misses them, he's still doing well. And I think that's a real. I was like, wow. And I always I knew that to be true and taught that myself. But to hear it from James Cameron, like so, he's like a, a filmmaker. It just showed me how it just translates into all types of businesses and industries. It's a mindset thing. Of you know, where do you set your goal? If you're aiming for here, yeah, you'll probably hit it. But then what? Okay, so mm-hmm. you'll hit your goal and your average and average, like you know, average plus average plus average times average equals average. It's not like somehow that all coagulates to be great. It's <laughs> like you know, the, the mortgage crisis where they said, let's take a bunch of piece of shit deadbeat borrowers, uh, excuse me, deadbeat loans. Okay, and that beat bars on piece of shit. Okay, but deadbeat loans, right? And they're all terrible, but we put them all together, they're suddenly good. No, you have a giant lump of terrible. Like it doesn't change the makeup. Like by putting a lot of bad together, suddenly it becomes good through diversification. So the mm-hmm. same thing is true of success. And I would add to that success in love and business. I mean, it's it, it, you can apply it across the board. For sure. And I always say that, you know, like I had incredibly high standards for money and success but very low standards, my personal relationships with my wives. Like, you know, what, what you have a high standard for, you focus on. You, you, you won't settle for less than. So I learned the hard way and also for ethics. My, my ethical standard was very, became very low. It started off high, it dropped. And because of that, I paid the price. So those standards, we have them for everything. We have them for, for love. We have them for relationships. We have them for our body. I've always had a very high standard for keeping in shape. So yeah, I, so, so my body is important to me, so I exercise every day. If your body's not important, what do you do? You won't exercise. It's so, hilarious to hear you say that after all the drugs I know you've taken. <laughs> what? Amazing. I look pretty good <laughs> considering that, right? I really want to talk about that because I've, I've told my audience this before. Um, I do drink alcohol, but I, I've literally never tried a drug. I've never tried an illicit drug of any kind. Um, and I, I don't know if I'm in the minority, the majority, but yeah, having lived in New York for almost 20 years and having practiced law and been in media, I think that's unusual. But I'm kind of curious about all the drugs you took and like how they felt and how you feel about them now. I know you're sober now, uh, but it was a lot. And you lived a life of big, big debauchery while you were while you were running that firm. And I, I, I'm just curious about the whole thing. So uh, let me start with this. Had you grown up 
we'll squeeze in a, in a break in a minute. But had you grown up doing drugs, drinking alcohol? Like, were you that kind of person before all this? I used drugs occasionally in high school and the college, but no, I was not a drug. I was never addicted to drugs. And uh, it was never something that was like an integral part of my life growing up. But I okay. tried, I tried drugs and I used them. Like, you know, most kids, had, you know, I think back then it smoked pot and uh, I tried cocaine once or twice, but that wasn't something that was really part of my life. Mm hmm. And so when you were at the penny stock firm and Rothschild before that, this is prior to, you know, the formation of Stratton, had it yet blown up in your life or you were like addicted yet when you started that firm, the big firm? That was another part of the movie that was a bit I thought was kind of I, I, it, it, to me, it could have been done a bit more elegantly. Again, I love the movie, but if there were things I could change, it, they, they had me going to the dark side really fast. And like, it almost like, you know, I go day one, I'm like this really wet behind the ears, honest kid that like, can't we make our clients money too. And he's like, no. And I'm like, okay. And then the next scene, I'm in a strip club snorting coke, right? That's not <laughs> Okay, true. wait, that's yeah. a great place to leave it. <laughs> We've got a clip uh, to sort of bring that to life for you uh, right after this quick break when we have more with Jordan Belfort, the Wolf of Wall Street, sex, drugs, and Leonardo DiCaprio. What more could you ask for? Stay tuned. Hollywood is under siege, covertly compromised by a global adversary. The same Hollywood that sold the American dream to the world is now making nightmares a reality. The American way of life is being censored by the Chinese Communist Party. Some films have scenes completely altered. Other films have lost their funding or been canceled altogether. Some actors have been banned from China for supporting human rights. Hollywood Takeover is a documentary brought to you by the Epoch Times, revealing how the CCP has infiltrated major movie studios. Join Chris Fenton, a former Hollywood executive, and Tiffany Meyer, an investigative news reporter, through their journey in exposing how the film industry gradually lost its integrity on its path to profits. Don't miss the most important documentary ever made about Hollywood. For a limited time, watch the first 10 minutes for free on HollywoodTakeover.com MK. That's HollywoodTakeover.com MK. How many years were you, I don't know if we can say on the straight and narrow, but like how, how long did it take before full debauchery and drug addiction set in? Um, so I would say it took from the time of I walked to Della Broach, I probably two years um, to start using drugs and maybe two and a half to, to be really deep into it. Um, and, you know, drug addiction is a very strange thing. It's very insidious. It starts slowly and it creeps in a little bit at a time and before you know it you know one drug makes you want to do another drug to counterbalance the negative effects of the first one then the third one but i mean it, it happens really slowly and um but i would say by 1991 90, i was full in very much into drugs okay and um the you know it's, I think I understand that just because anybody who drinks alcohol can understand the alcohol at night and coffee in the morning. This is just a much more extreme version of it. And when you when the firm was killing it and you were killing it, there's uh, that's portrayed in the movie. And you're pretty open about the drugs. And here's a clip of uh, Leonardo as you on the drug cocktail that you'd been using. On a daily basis, I consume enough drugs to sedate Manhattan, Long Island, and Queens for a month. Okay, Mr. Jordan. 
I take Quaaludes 10 to 15 times a day for my back pain, Adderall to stay focused. Xanax to take the edge off, pot to mellow me out, cocaine to wake me back up again, and morphine well, because it's awesome. All the drugs under God's blue heaven, there is one that is my absolute favorite. See, enough of this shit will make you invincible. Able to conquer the world and eviscerate your enemies. Oh, and I'm not talking about this. I'm talking about this. At the end there for our listeners, he was the, the character was snorting cocaine and said, I'm not talking about this, the coke. He's talking about this. And he holds up a hundred dollar bill. Money. Money was the number one drug. I have to say that um, I wish I could take credit for writing that line. That was Terrence Winter who came up with that brilliant statement, which is so true. But yeah, it's a real, I, I, I thought that was so clever of him because, um, you know, the other things I, I all said, but he sort of pivoted back to this ultimate truth that, that the money itself was the most powerful drug of all. And I read that like, wow, this guy is good. He's <laughs> like, he's, How much yeah. money w- were you making at your peak? Also oh, a lot of money. Man. I, I, you know, let's go back to the time also. This is a time before hedge funds, before you heard about people making hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, I was making, you know, a, a, a million a week in ca- in the cash side. Plus I was uh, taking stakes in all these different companies. So I had a net worth much, much higher. You know, I, I had shares and you know, I, there was a time I owned 85% of Steve Madden shoes and 20 other companies. Um, that were all going public or were public. Um, and then I was making the cash portion as well. So I was making a phenomenal amount of money. Wow. You had a yacht, you had a helicopter, you had estates, mansions, and so on, jewels for your wives and blah, 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 blah. What did it feel like? Did it, did it make you happy? You know, the goal of being rich? Were you feeling like, nailed it? I, I think the thing about money is that, you know, and I, I've said this many times, you know, I have been rich and been really, really, really happy. I've also been rich and really, really, really miserable. I've been poor and really, really, really miserable, but never once have I been poor and happy. Like, so like, it's like, I think money doesn't buy happiness, but a lack of money can really be a passport to misery and and discomfort. And I've seen a lack of money cause so many problems in marriages with families mm-hmm. and, and money is an, I believe my belief is money is an incredibly important thing it's a tool it's certainly not everything and it won't buy happiness but without it uh you could really be making your life much more complicated and your relationships much more tenuous without money so I mean that's the best definition I can give you did, did it feel great to make all that money yeah I mean I, I, it felt great and I make a lot of money now and it's I love making money but I don't buy into this idea that it's the money itself that's making me happy because I have times now where I'm unhappy and I have times now where I'm ecstatic. Uh, but I, I will tell you that I was broke right now. I would not be very happy at all, ever. What was your favorite toy, right? Like what, because a lot of people fantasize about having all that, all that dough and they ask, what would I buy and what would I love? What was your favorite? Probably the helicopter, you know, um, <laughs> On the on the yacht at a helicopter, and you know we'd land this helicopter and um, on the boat, and then take it out and fly it around. My captain was amazing; he was a great pilot, and he'd fly ten feet off the water, and you know, like gunship in Vietnam sort of stuff. And and we just you know have that boat in places that you know that you would 
normally not go to, like, you know, the Virgin Islands or the Caribbean, and then take the helicopter and just see amazing things land in live volcanoes that weren't currently erupting. So we did all these really cool things. I think that was probably the, the, the most, my most favorite toy, even more so than the yacht. Mm-hmm. And is it true that the, the yacht, the Nadine, named after your second wife, um, was taken down by a rogue wave? Yeah, that's true. It's just what true. happened? Was, we had a storm, a massive storm um, that kicked up. It started off as just like, you know, some chop, heavy chop. And the captain was, uh, you know, advising me against making the crossing from Rome to Sardinia. But, you know, I was like, can we make it? He's like, yeah, we'll make it. And, you know, it's going to be rough. It'll be uncomfortable. We'll break a few plates. I'm like, let's go. Like, I was just an action junkie. junkie. Oh and um, also at the wife. time, I was doing a lot of drugs, you know, <laughs> and that sort of got me into this mindset. Like I couldn't sit still. I had to move. I had to, let's go. Let's go. Let's, let's go. You know? And, and I, I convinced him to make the crossing. And then in unbeknownst to him or I at the time, a freak storm was about to kick up and it did. And those six to eight foot waves became 20 foot waves really fast. And then 50 foot waves. And then we got hit with a road wave to the side. And that's how it, the whole thing happened. Yeah, it was crazy. Oh my God. So, I mean, did, did she break apart at sea? Like, did, were, was there a helicopter rescue? Yeah. Oh yeah. hundred percent. So it's just so it's, hard to believe. It's so crazy. What? You know, Megan, I'll tell you this. Um, the reality is far more cinematic than the movie. I think for budgetary reasons, they didn't recreate what really happened. It was just, it was an 18 hour ordeal where the boat was sinking slowly on its side after getting hit by this wave and going down. And they tried to first, the Italians first tried to send out a Coast Guard helicopter, which lowered down a basket. But in 50, 60 mile an hour, it, you know, it looks easy in the movies, but in reality, the basket swinging 100 feet that way. They couldn't get the basket to the boat, and then they ran out of gas. So they had to go back. And, well, then the captain's like, all right, we need to abandon ship. I'm like, what? Like into the life raft. I'm like, you're not kidding. So captain's orders. So like, all right, so we all go to the back of the boat. And uh, he puts the rubber raft in, and bam, like in one second, the raft washes away. Of it's course. Gone. It took down right? a yacht. It's going to take down a raft. And it's so like, funny. Right. When I watched this in the movie, I was like, Leonardo DiCaprio will only be in movies in which big ships go down that he's on. <laughs> <laughs> this is his thing, apparently. That is crazy. You've survived so many massive life risks. You know, not, yes, drugs, of course. And then there was prison. But like that, that was so crazy. I, I had a hard time believing it. But you, I believe you now. Um, yeah. So. You so, so the, the drugs and the whole thing. Can we just talk about the marriages for a minute? Because in the movie, your wife is um, your second wife, Nadine, who is this incredibly beautiful woman in real life and in the movie. Uh, you, you fall in love with her while you're still married to your first wife. And in the movie, they portray this Margot Robbie walking in and you're just completely floored by this gorgeous woman. And um, just as a funny aside, I'll tell the audience that when I texted you first, um, this is I pulled it up because it was a funny sort of introduction from me to you. I said, so nice to meet you. Uh, we have a ton in common. I hate perpetual victimhood and people who blame others for their problems. <laughs> I love Brian Friedman, who we both know. It's uh, our lawyer. And I also had a movie made about my life in which Margot Robbie starred. <laughs> so she played your second wife, Nadine. Um, there's actually she in the movie that was partially about me, Bombshell, she played a different character and Charlize Theron played me. Hold on. We actually had a full screen made showing that 
the split screen of of the two will pop it up there. Look, there's there's me and me, Charlize and and Margot and Leonardo and Margot. So, um, yeah. So so Margot Robbie plays your second wife and your thoughts now, because Nadine is a big star in your life, in the movie, in the book. You call her the Duchess uh, because I guess she was British originally. Um, Your thoughts on her, because it's a real love story. You do wind up having a terribly tumultuous relationship with her. And I know you're married to somebody else now, but I kind of wanted you to put a period on the end of that relationship for me and how you how you see it now. I think that, listen, you know, um, she was, I think, you know, you have certain people that come into your lives at certain times for a reason. Um, and she was the right person for me at that time. I, you know, I really, you know, the sad part was I really loved my first wife. I really did. She was an amazing lady. And I think she was under portrayed in the book in many ways, like uh, in the movie, uh, she was a beautiful woman. The girl played it was beautiful too, but she really was, a, was a good woman. And, um, and, but at that point in time, I don't think anyone could have survived what I was at the time. I was, everything was taking off so fast. And it was, um, it, it, you know, the, with the drugs involved, it was just like, I was looking, I, I was in that mindset of just what's next, what's next, what's excess. next. And it was excess at every turn. More, more right? It's this weird mindset that you get into sometimes on Wall Street and other times as well, but Wall Street seems to bring it out in people. And, um, and um, and I met her just, it was just like the movie, literally, like exactly like that at a party. She walked in, I was thought she was gorgeous. And then we, uh, you know, I tracked her down and we went out and, and, you know, I learned a very important lesson, you know, from that whole situation that about cheating in a marriage, because um, I don't cheat my marriages after that. I didn't cheat after that marriage because um, you, you can't choose who you fall in love with. Like it's, and you know, you're playing Russian roulette. Like, you know, it's hard to just kind of have a casual affair because you don't know what might happen with that affair. And I, I fell in love with her. I didn't really intend to. But when you do fall in love with someone, um, you know, it's very difficult um, to stay with someone that you're not in love with anymore because I think it's hard to love two people at the same time. You know, Wait, but you're not saying you didn't cheat on Nadine, the Margot Robbie character, because th- that's like half the movie of you with the hookers while you're married to her. Is that you're saying oh, when no. your current marriage, you don't? after her like when i the whole when i look back and saying when i in perspective when i look back at my life after my marriage to nadine okay yes, okay okay got it especially when i wrote my book that was really to, for me writing the book was an incredibly like profound experience it was almost like self-analysis and self-psychology my own you know strengths faults and frailties right mm-hmm. and when i look back then even when i was with nadine i kind of knew that I made this gross error in terms of just like going out and sticking my hand in the cookie jar. But just so you understand, when you're doing drugs, like the way I was doing drugs, you know, anything is possible. There is no like, oh, I'm going to be a good, you're like a different person. At a certain mm-hmm. point, you get caught up in a mindset where everything can be rationalized and everything seems okay. Um, the truth is I had far more, I, 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 I this is going to sound strange to you, okay, but it's not as strange as you think. Um, but you know, in my mind, I didn't consider sleeping with hookers cheating in the traditional sense because there was no emotional attachment. Involved. No, I, I understand that. My, my husband wrote a book about Wall Street called Ghosts of Manhattan, and he, he he did it. It was very well researched. This is one of the points he makes about the guys who, whether it's hookers or what they call, forgive me, a rub and tug from a massage therapist kind of thing. They don't consider it cheating. 
Exactly. So yeah, I'm glad that you at least, you know, you don't have to agree with it, but you can understand I'm not the only person that, that, that thinks that. And I'm not saying it's right, because I don't think it's right. In retrospect, they don't think it, but that's how I was thinking at the time. And she knew, she knew what was going on. She was aware because it was all, everyone was getting married. Everyone was having bachelor parties and all the stories were certain, but it was kind of harmless, so to speak. Right. Um, and then I had some affairs as well as, as did she, you know, she was no angel either. Right. Mm-hmm. It takes two to tango. Um, but yeah, and I, and I think that since that marriage, though, whenever I've been in a relationship, I have been faithful since since then. So that, without, after that Can I ask marriage, you a dumb been, question? This is a dumb, like, I really feel like a goody two-shoes at the moment, but how does one order a hooker? Like, <laughs> when you first did it for the first time, like, you know, it's not like ordering Domino's pizza. Like, how does... <laughs> how do you, now, it's like, now it's like ordering Domino's pizza, probably even easier. <laughs> so now it's all done on the internet, you know, and you have all these websites and all this sort of stuff that, that goes on around the... The world everywhere every i mean you can go any like any city there's like a craigslist i think was really big with it for a while i'm not really up on the hooker sites these days but i'm sure if you just call, just google call girls in my city you'll have eight thousand <laughs> of them up, you know? your public service announcement for the day um okay so and then the movie that's portrayed with like the, i mean it's not just hookers it's like orgies it's craziness on planes so many naked girls everywhere so much drugs so much alcohol is that how it really was yes it was it was like that and worse it was uh it became it became um, some sort of perverted version of can you top this? You know, it's like, you know, we were these action junkies that were constantly looking for higher and higher cliffs to dive off of and shallower and shallower pools to land in. So every time you would do something, it would be extreme and insane. What do you do next to top it? You know, the first time we did something obscene, you would think it sounded obscene, then we some kid that was struggling financially, we just said, we'll shave his head and give him $10,000. And that was amazing. We got a barbershop pole we made. It was like, oh my God, we're going to shave. Everyone went crazy. But then three months later, a head shaving is $100. Like, so it becomes like the norm. So what do you do next? Well, let's shave a girl's head. Like, you know, let's, you know, it's every time you do something, it's like, what's next? What's next? What's next? So this sort of evolution of insanity that happens by trying to, constantly keep yourself and everyone around you entertained. I always compared Stratton, like, the, you know, the floor of the brokerage room is like, is like the floor of the Coliseum, the sands of the Coliseum, where mm-hmm. acts of depravity serve as entertainment for the mob. And it was very much like that. Yes. I read in your book that you said that you had to Im- impose a rule in the office between the hours of, I think, 8 a.m. and 7 p.m. People were not allowed to have sex on the floor. Most people didn't obey that, though. Like, that, that started from... <laughs> Like right, in the, you know, it just, you know, it's really funny. In the beginning, I was very, like, very straight like that. Like the first time I caught someone was like day day one. Some kid was getting a blowjob in an elevator in the building, <laughs> and I was like, and I found, heard this. I'm like, I'm gonna fire this kid. And then like, like, well, you know, and, the, and the, you know, it's not so tough. Like whatever. And within a week, the girl had given a blowjob to everybody, oh, and God. then me. It, it's <laughs> like it, it, it's so crazy if you're not actively guarding your your own ethics your own integrity your own moral compass it is yeah. really easy megan for it to spiral out of control really easy i'm, I'm telling you it really yeah, is. this Not is just- this is kind of the theme of the interview right back to our original point about the guy cheating on the series seven so when you look back now how old are you now i'm 59 okay so when you look back now at that time and the craziness and the excess you know from a guy who had to be rescued from the waters after your yacht sunk. I wonder, 
what is does anything jump out at you as especially crazy? Like, wow, that was the most that was the most excessive. My bachelor party, which we really can't talk about here, is just too disgusting. But, you know, my bachelor party was like a low, I think. Um, and it was like sort of a culmination of can you top this? Of what, you know, what, what can we do that's just, you know, depraved and unusual? And, and, you know, it's almost like, you know, you see, this is before, you know, remember the time. This is before the internet, you know? And now on the internet, you could find every type of perversion and insanity and over the top behavior. Mm. Whether it's on like platforms where they're doing gags and stunts or on porn sites, it's everything that you want is on the internet right now. Good, bad, ugly, or otherwise. Back then that didn't exist. And you know, you imagine things from what you saw in movies and and heard things that you like put together these like scenarios of what you thought was cool and what you thought was fun, and you're like inventing it as you go along. And we were doing that at at, at a very high level because mm. we had a lot of money. So we nothing was really out of reach of what we could do. So you know, while someone might have a bachelor party and have a, a dancer or one prostitute, we had a hundred of them. And, you know, if, if there's someone brings some drugs, we had a boatloads of drugs. It was all with like, you know, sort of five times, five times, 10 times a hundred. And, and it was insane. It truly was insane. Would you ever have the sick feeling the next day? I don't mean physical illness, obviously that must've come with it, but would you ever have the, you know, the moral second guessing the next day, or would that just, that would have to wait until sobriety and, you know, prison and all that? I would have it. Every hour of every day. You would. So every, you were conscious of the wrongness of it. In the book, I'm always talking about these, like, like I'm almost like watching my own life fall, you know, unfold before me. Like I'm an actor on a stage, not in control of my own behavior, which is a massive, incredible cop-out, by the way. It's an incredible, like liberating cop-out. It's not me. It's my, I'm out of control, right? Right. But in control, but you rationalize, never underestimate the power of rationalization. And also... You know, what we do as human beings is we surround ourselves with a peer group that shares our values so we don't think we're crazy. So, you know, what defines what's normal and not in a society is what's happening in society every day. So we almost form this self-contained society where, where rules that would might be seem abnormal or, or, or completely out of control in the real world seem quite normal in the four walls of the boardroom or when we were partying in a hotel or more casino. Mm-hmm. That makes sense it does. It makes sense. And it's scary. It's it's I, I see it and I read it. And I, it's like you almost have to look at the people around you for the reflection of what you are, it, good or bad. Um, but eventually it, it would all come crashing down uh, legally, the marriage, uh, the money, all of it. And that's where we're going to pick it up next uh, with Jordan Belfort. So happy to be speaking with the Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, and we'll be right back with more. Hollywood is under siege, covertly compromised by a global adversary. The same Hollywood that sold the American dream to the world is now making nightmares a reality. The American way of life is being censored by the Chinese Communist Party. Some films have scenes completely altered. Other films have lost their funding or been canceled altogether. Some actors have been banned from China for supporting human rights. Hollywood Takeover is a documentary brought to you by the Epoch Times, revealing how the CCP has infiltrated major movie studios. Join Chris Fenton, a former Hollywood executive, and Tiffany Meyer, an investigative news reporter, through their journey in exposing how the film industry gradually lost its integrity on its path to profits. Don't miss the most important documentary ever made about Hollywood. For a limited time, 
Watch the first 10 minutes for free on HollywoodTakeover.com slash MK. That's HollywoodTakeover.com slash MK. I can't skip by before we get to the downfall about before asking you about the animals that were allowed on the floor of your office. Can you spend a second on that? Yeah, it was it wasn't like it was a zoo or anything like that. I think the, the people made a zoo more than the animals. <laughs> but but the uh but yeah, but people would bring in pets like iguanas and and dogs and parrots and uh and uh fish, goldfish, as you know, one of them got oh. eaten. Um, so yeah, that we had the sort of, um, I think we were ahead of our time in that sense. Like we had the sort of like fun loving atmosphere that they, they, the bro culture on in the high tech firms have now. And like, you know, yeah. it's sort of like you go to work and like, it's all about being comfortable, having fun at work with that, like the beanbag chairs and that obviously we had a bit of a twist there, like with the, <laughs> with the, with the sex and everything. but I mean, some of the, of the untraditional stuff, we were blazing trails. What you didn't know was that th- that was the their emotional support iguana. I mean, <laughs> these guys, they needed they needed a lifeline. I read that um, the one that was a bridge too far for you was uh, a chimpanzee coming in in a diaper. And you, you had even you drew the line at that one. Exactly. It was, you know, there was always like uh, interesting things trying to be brought into the boardroom acts of the, you know, where they were people, animals, things, you name it. It was a. Uh, mm-hmm. It was a freak, you know, it, it, it makes sense when you view it from the lens of what happens when you put 3,000 barely post-adolescent kids in a room and give them too much money and too much time and some drugs and alcohol. What do you think is going to happen? Nothing like, good. So it, it's like I, when I look at this and read about this, all I can think is, can you imagine if today's post-Me Too, post-woke like oh. woke world, woke world, got a look at this in, you know, present day? Megan, I, I, you know, it's really interesting that you say that because, you know, I come from a family, as I told you, a really empowered female. My mother is a really empowered, successful, educated, trailblazing woman. She literally is the oldest woman to pass the bar. She was voted pro bono lawyer of the year in New York and when she was like 74. Wow. She's still showing the attack at 89 or 80, I don't know if she's 88, she'll kill me, 88. <laughs> but like, you know, there wasn't, it's interesting because the, you know, rules have changed so much over the years. Mm-hmm. If you would ask me if we sexually harassed girls back then, I would say unequivocally not. Like unequivocally, like no girl, if I knew of any girl there that was being harassed, I'd fire the guy. Like in a split, if I found out that a guy was doing something to a girl the girl didn't want, I would have insisted that they be fired immediately. And I, I, I live by that. I swear by that today. Most of the girls, they were part of the insanity. Well, that's the thing. It's not harassment if you want it. They really enjoy it. Now, I bet you, though, in retrospect, it was happening, hidden from me and also in this sort of culture of women accepting things they probably weren't comfortable with, but had to smile and, 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 and shake it off because they thought that was the norm. So I think it's very good on some level that that's changed, that women's speak up for themselves and 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 don't accept what they not, not comfortable they feel like they have to so i'm betting that there was that women that were very uncomfortable there and, mm-hmm. and, and that but they just felt like they had no choice so either you go with the flow or you're out right so i think that that's some positive changes i think also i i agree that it's gone many make way too far in some cases with the sort of victim mentality people not taking responsibility for their part and things as well and i think that you know going back 20 years and trying to say something happened without proof is very difficult um 
in some cases, it's very clear, like with you know, animals like Harvey Weinstein, it's obviously things happen and there's proof and there's corroborating evidence, but it's a lot more subtle than that in many cases. And it's a very difficult thing. So I don't pretend to have the answer, but um, um, but we certainly did not look at it as harassment. That, that I tell you, that would have been stopped in a second. I, I'm thinking now there was a woman who came on my show at NBC. Uh, we were doing a story on harassment, Me Too, what's happening in the society right in the midst of all of it. And she was complaining that her complaint, it wasn't like part of a bigger story. Her complaint, she's part of a panel, was that her boss told her she looked hot in her dress. Now, OK, it's not ideal because you want to you want to be seen as a professional, but like that's not really <laughs> what the Me Too movement was. I all I can think about is the a woman from your firm saying that I had a girl next to me giving blowjobs to half the firm. Sit down. Take a seat. Woman would say, damn, I, I thought I looked pretty hot that day, too. Like that mindset back then, probably. Mm-hmm. But like, again, it's, you know, I have a daughter. My daughter's 27. She's you know, 20, 28. She's impressed. She's a graduate from NYU, a degree in psychology, grad school. Um, very empowered woman, very, very liberal in our, in our, in our, in our, uh, beliefs and stuff. And we get along phenomenal. Uh, we don't agree on a lot of stuff, but one thing I, I certainly agree with you is, is victimhood. I, I, I think that sometimes this has a, a way of crossing over into someone becoming a victim. And I, I don't think that helps any cause. I, I think that, um, I think it's things had to change. It's good that they're changing and, and, and will continue, but there's a, there's, I think what gets lost sometimes in these, in these movements and these paradigm shifts is like, it's like you can't paint everything with one brush. There's like a degrees of things and there's a, a continuum and you have to look at things really along that continuum to decide, you know, you know, what do you do about something that happened a long time ago? I think it's really sad when someone loses their career over something that happened 15 or 20 years ago when the, when the norms were different. Mm-hmm. That being said, then there's monsters out there that deserve everything that they got. And and that's a great thing. So but I think it's more complex than just bad, good, you know, harassment. I totally agree with you. I mean, I I was talking with Douglas Murray, who is brilliant and a social commentator and author and this British guy. And he's great. And and I was talking to him about these college students who were yelling at their school dean saying these were college students who happen to be black saying, you don't understand anything. We come you know, we come from slaves that are you don't have the same ancestors. Our ancestors were slaves and yours weren't. And, you know, you 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 basically can't explain anything to us because of that. And I said, well, you know, how's this guy supposed to respond to this? And Douglas Murray said. We can all do that. We can all do that, right? Everybody's got some sort of a painful history. It may not equal slavery, but bad. You know, it's bad. Listen, my people, the Irish Americans didn't have it so good when we first came over uh, to America. And you could go down the list. But you tweeted out something on July 22nd where I was like, well, I haven't seen a, a shorter, more succinct version of the way I feel, which is sad story. No one cares. Work harder. It's not to dismiss slavery. It's not about slavery, but it's just about victim mentality. Something bad happened to you. I understand. Oh, it's, it's anyway, back to work. Try harder. Like that's the only way forward. Sitting around and pointing the finger at everybody and lamenting and feeling like you have bad luck and poor me. Not going to get you anywhere. I, I you know, I, I have a, I've said publicly many times that I, I am very, very prejudiced against two types of people, lazy people and stupid people. Everyone else I'm totally okay with. It's like, I just despise lazy, stupid people, right? And, you know, I, I believe in the egalitarian system. I grew up in a household that like, like there was just zero prejudice in my household, really like zero, okay? Like I never even considered it. And when I saw it out in the world so much, it was pretty shocking to me. Um, and, 
But listen, I am. It's, it's it's very complicated. You know, this stuff when you start getting into into the race struggle, it's you know, there's a lot of bad shit that happened. And like you know, I watched the movie recently. I was watching Crash with my wife, Paul Haggis film, great film. And you know, and you look back, and it's like. It was appalling, but like what how the LAPD treated black people. Fucking appalling. Yeah. Imagine having to, I can only imagine driving in a car and not, like I never worried that if I got pulled over, something would happen. Like I never even cared, right? So, but again, okay, sucks. Work harder. Now, I get it. Like, okay, but like you can't use that as an excuse not to, you got to still go forward in your own life and, and just, you know, do the best with whatever hand was dealt to you. We all have negative stuff that either we was dealt us or, through our own mistakes, we put ourselves in positions that compromise us, that, you know, cause us problems. And we have to overcome that and put one foot in front of the other. So I just think that that when you take, sometimes things can be true, but okay, so what? Like you can't, if you, you it doesn't serve you, it doesn't serve your cause to live in the problem versus you actually, you know, living your most empowered version of your own life and, and being part of a solution, which is work harder, make changes and go forward, but don't blame everyone around you for your mm-hmm. life. I just think that helps you. Honestly, and, and I understand that because it's not to say that there are no victims in the world who people don't get victimized. But I remember even when I was getting harassed by my boss at Fox in the moment talking to my therapist at the time, she was my like marital therapist, although I didn't go through marital therapy with my first husband. I just went to individual. And this woman, I was telling her about it, like this is what he's doing, all this stuff. And she just kept putting it back on me. And now today's people would say, oh, she was wrong. She blamed the victim. She didn't blame me. She just said, what could you have done differently in in the room? What can you do differently in the future to make, you know, to, to try to avoid that situation? And I didn't find it offensive. I found it empowering. Right. Me. I will be the one to change my life and make sure this doesn't happen to me or that I navigate it better or that I navigate this deftly in a way that I can preserve my future in an industry in which I'm totally green and new. You know, of course. Right. Of course, you're right. <laughs> exactly. Like, I, I think that most people have to believe feel this way that the way you feel the way i feel i think what we have in the twitter sphere is like a, a relatively small group of very loud vocal people that that expounds on a view that is really not widely popular or believed but i think on some level the what happens is corporate america embraces that because it allows it gives them plausible deniability so they say they're woke. They say they're doing all this stuff so they can keep raping and pillaging the village as they've done for the last hundred years. Like it's their great way. We're responsible. See, but, but they're actually in reality. All it is is smoke and mirrors for them to keep doing the same old, same old thing by embracing causes they really don't believe in. Because so to, to me, I'm seeing happening make zero sense unless you look at it in that way that it's like it's all part of a much broader strategy to say we're great because if we embrace those causes, then we keep doing what we want and keep making as much money as we want as long as we want. Yeah, that's that's PR. Don't be fooled. And I sadly, I don't know whether people are or not, but they sh- they got to be paying attention. Um, OK, so into your life comes someone named Agent Coleman portrayed in the movie by literally the only celebrity I've ever had a crush on, uh, Kyle Chandler. I love. I fell in love with him on Friday Night Lights. Doug knows. Um, and he, he does a great job in the movie of sort of quietly stalking you. And you knew about this Agent Coleman who was on to you. First, the SEC was on to you. And then he was an FBI agent who was on to you. And 
at first, you know, you you'd never met him, but then they slapped the cups on you one day and and you met him. When you real like when was it that you realized the House of Cards is coming down? I'm likely going to prison and my sort of fast and loose with people's monies, you know, dodging the ethics laws and so on. What I, in a way that I thought was clever, but maybe not uh, has caught up with me. So it's, it's a very it's a good question. It's, it's, the answer is probably a bit more lengthy than than because it's, it's complex. It's not it's not any one thing happening at one time. There's like sort of a, a, a lot of things happening at once. Um, the interesting thing, I, I think, is how long it took him to actually find a way to to get to get an indictment against. Because, like, to be clear, that like, what I was doing was not like a Bernie Madoff, like you know, hey, you know, just take your money and like not invest. Like, I had a legitimate firm that was obeying every single securities law out there, so you could audit my firm and literally living. Like, the SC was there for years; they couldn't find anything other than garden variety small violations that you would find at every firm. So it wasn't like. I was breaking the laws. Like, well, ah, Madoff, he just took the money, didn't invest the money. All they had to do was look, right? Like, how could they didn't look? Crazy, right? No, the SC was like living in my firm and watching every ticket. But I was breaking laws, but they were they were very <laughs> esoteric and hard to detect. They, you understand? It wasn't like, so yeah. I'm not saying I, I wasn't breaking laws, but it, like, if you looked at the firm, unless you could speak to people and they'd admit they were doing something, you would never know. It would be impossible to prove, right? It was a very small portion of my business was illegal very small, but that was enough to make it illegal, right? And the difference with Coleman is he was just doggedly determined for years and years. And ultimately, it wasn't even the stocks that he that got him in to my firm and was able to get an indictment. It was the money laundering to Switzerland. It was the fact that I moved money to Switzerland to a Swiss banker that, by my own bad luck, got indicted in the United States not because of me, for some other thing he was involved with, Benny Hanna and Benny Hanna. Benny Hanna, right? <laughs> and he was laundering money for many different people. One of them was this sort of whole offshore. I'll never forget looking at the indictment against this guy. It was like Benny Hanna, offshore boat racing. I'm like, what? Like, what is this? Like, not my his indictment. This was banker. I was like, oh my god, could I have worse luck? I picked the one banker that gets arrested <laughs> in the United States for laundering money for like a Benny Hanna. Now, what <laughs> Benny Hanna was doing, I have no idea how what ended up happening with that, but it was in the indictment, right? And um, and then I knew I was screwed because he got picked up and he's in the U.S. and he's cooperating. So of course he gave my name up, and that was what gave Coleman the ability to go back and get uh, a, a, um, the proper paperwork to open up my accounts in Switzerland. And, and that was it. I was, I had a headshot against me. I was done. When I got arrested, I then admitted to breaking these other securities laws, like what, which is called free riding, putting new issues in friends accounts and that sort of rat holes and stuff. That was not the indictment was secured by the Swiss banking stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's ultimately how he brought me down. And I, and I, I had a massive respect for him. And I, he's a friend of mine today, by the way, we became what? friends. He, He's been on my podcast. I really like him. I have just nothing but the highest regard for him. Yeah, he's a That's great amazing. guy. Uh, he thinks exactly like you. Just so you know, you should have him on your show. He shares, you know, he's, he's a very, very intelligent guy. Um, and he, I deserve to go to jail. I mean, like, I broke the law. I mean, like, you know, he was like, it wasn't like I was, I was framed. He, they, I wasn't like, they made this stuff up. No, I mean, I broke the law and I got caught. And I'm, listen, I wasn't the first guy. You know, Wall Street, you know, you can go to any firm 
and find terrible things happening in any day. So I'm not saying I was, I certainly wasn't any worse, but I broke the law. doesn't make it right. Okay. So like, you know, you could say it was happening everywhere, which it was. I didn't invent, I, I did it with more panache, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. But the things I was doing were happening all over Wall Street. They're still happening today. I got indicted for it. I deserve to get indicted for it. And he he um, earned the indictment the old fashioned knocking on doors and doing the work. Can I ask you about the, um, there, you, you write about how he came to you and said, I went to 100 people. You call them Strattonites, guys who work for you at Stratton. And nobody would talk. They were they were totally loyal. And and you said something like, you know, that's what happens when you're, when you're the cash cow. Um, but so, so they didn't want to turn you in, the guys who worked for you. But then I know you you wore a wire for the FBI, you and, and the guy who also got indicted with you, your partner. Um, did you have to go against those guys, the guys who didn't turn on you? Or was it different fish? So this is really, this is, this is probably the most difficult part of my life, I, I would think. And I ended, up, I ended up getting in trouble, by the way. I almost, thanks to Coleman, I didn't do 30 years in jail because I refused. So I agreed to cooperate, um, as did pretty much everybody in my case. So, and, 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 you know, when I was considering whether or not to cooperate, um, I was like, everyone is going to cooperate. So you're not going to have to testify against your friends. You're going to have to give all the information up, tell them where your money is. And you know, maybe you'll testify against someone you don't know. But it's not most everyone in the federal system. It's so rare that someone goes to trial in these cases because the, the sentencing guidelines are so onerous. And that unless you cooperate, it's like, it's like go to trial, you lose it's 30 years. So most people will end up cooperating, right? And then they were threatened to indict my wife even though she hadn't done anything wrong. Once they threatened to indict my wife, I had no choice but to, to plead guilty and cooperate. So I started cooperating and giving information on, on what was going on. And then they asked me to wear a wire against a very, very close friend of mine. And, um, and it was a terrible, terrible thing to do because it, for me, that was sort of my moral line. I was like, I'm okay, you know, cooperating with a rat out, a close friend of mine. It, was just, it just seemed like it was just a bridge too far at the time. And so when I went, to meet with him, they wired me up. I passed him a note saying, mm-hmm. I'm wired, don't incriminate yourself. And it was this moment I was like, I'm a good guy. I'm a, I'm a, what a good guy I am. Like for doing, I'm a, I'm a stand up guy, I, you know? And I passed him this note, and sure enough, he didn't incriminate himself. And then three months later, he got in trouble and turned me in mm. and gave no, and 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 I mean, and and that was the point when I think I lost all faith in humanity. It's like that was my ultimate low point. Where I was like, I can't. Like, what do I do? I have any beliefs that are, are right or correct here? Like, like you know, you know like I, I broke the law. I justified that. I justified not cooperating because it's my friend. I shouldn't rat my friend out, and he turns around and rats me out. Like it was the ultimate blow. To, seriously, it was an emotional blow you can't imagine. And the government was going to break my agreement and give me the full sentence of like 28 years and it was yeah. agent coleman that stopped that from happening wow he stopped he stood up for me and said listen you know he wasn't even doing it to benefit himself you know it was a moment of, of stupidity and also try he thought he was trying to be a good person and like you know it wasn't like a selfless it was it was like a selfless thing i did it was like i was benefiting myself i just didn't want to hurt someone that i loved yeah. a friend yeah. you know what I'm saying so Coleman stepped in and saved me. And then I did cooperate. And, and there was a couple of people that went to trial. And um, But most people, um, really, I think 90, anyone who's really close to me, they cooperated. Yeah. They, and, and they all cut deals. And, and you and your partner went to prison. You for, or, or yeah. It's it's, terrible. You're really terrible at one. 
So Jordan did uh, plead guilty. He went. He was sentenced to four years. He served 22 months. Up next, I'm going to ask him about the very famous guy he met in prison who encouraged him to write this all down into a book and about the hundreds of hours he spent with Leonardo DiCaprio and what that was like. Uh, our closing chapter with Jordan Belfort right after this quick break. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is now over. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Oh, joy. Don't waive your rights and speak with them on your own. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. Call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash Megan. So Jordan, you go to prison and is it true that you met Tommy Chong there who had some advice for you of Cheech and Chong? Believe it or not, it's actually true that when I get to prison, who is my bunk mate, not just in the same prison, my bunk mate is Tommy Chong from Cheech and Chong. And they put <laughs> us together in the same cube. Uh, I guess they were both high profile, so they wanted to like kind of put us together and told me to watch us or just like they thought it was a smart thing to do. And, and um, you know, he's just a, he's a really good guy. He's a very smart guy too. Very, very, uh, very highly educated, profound speaker and a lot of nuggets of wisdom. And he was writing a book and there's not a lot to do in jail. So, you know, you, you sit there at night and you tell stories to each other. And I was telling him stories about my life and he's just laughing and rolling on the floor. Cause I'm, you know, some really funny stories and I'm a pretty good storyteller. He's doing the same to me. And like the third night he says, you know, I, I honestly thought you were full of shit, but my wife Googled you and like all of this stuff is online. It's true. You actually did all this. He goes, you have to write a book. And I was like, really? I'm like, you think my life was crazy? Like, I didn't think my life was that crazy because it was my life. I, it happened to me and I sort of just, whatever, you get used to all the insanity. He's like, I'm Tommy Chong and I think your life is crazy. So that's <laughs> right. So, so you do, uh, right? you write you write the book when you leave with the Wolf of Wall Street, which is what you were called in a newspaper article. And then everybody's clamoring for the movie rights. Leonardo DiCaprio gets involved. He wants to play you. This seemed to be a mission for him. And I read that you spent perhaps as many as hundreds of hours with him, getting him ready, showing him what it was like to be on that many drugs and so on. So what, what were your impressions of him in that whole process? I, I think what, what people don't realize maybe about leo is he's of course he's naturally talented but the like the amount of preparation and the care he put in to the role like he really like he was just so determined to make it perfect and, and he he worked really hard it wasn't like an he's, oh let me just wing it and it's gonna come out but he really put in mass amount of hours just you know we went through every single line of the script you know just again and again making sure every word sounded authentic and every scene was authentic and uh he just you know he's very talented and a very hard worker and there's a lot of integrity he's a great guy wow um you now are doing like entrepreneurship 
lessons, uh, sort of guidance, mentorship. And it almost, in a way, it's kind of self-helpy to me in a good way. Um, so like, how are you channeling this whole experience into a new version of you professionally? So it's, you know, it's, it's been many years now that I've been doing this. Um, I started in about 2009 going out there and, and teaching people first about, you know, the sort of the mindset of success using the lessons I've learned, then very quickly pivoting to teaching sales, the straight line system, which is really what, you know, made my career take off is that the system that I, I had taught the Stranites was very, it's, it's very ethical, you know, especially when I reinvented the system and, 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 and made it, you know, five better than it was. It's, it's a very powerful system. And that's really what I was starting to get hired around the world to teach this to sales forces and by individuals all over. Um, and then, you know, also teaching general, you know, entrepreneurship. So I do a lot of consulting with companies and, and yeah, my, my message is, is very, you know, it's very, um, I would say it's very honest. I, I, I think there's a lot of people that are out there teaching things like sales and, and, Entrepreneurship, they're not the first thing about it, really. They, they just done it. what they what they read either in my for my stuff or someone like a Tony Robbins stuff, who I have great respect for, is a legitimate and really, you know, brought things that were new and fresh. And then there are just so many just charlatans out there that are regurgitating the same nonsense and just trying to separate people from their money. And I, I really was very, very, you know, early on made this sort of, you know, my my internal compass was very, very clear. It was pointing north, meaning towards ethics and integrity. Like I, you know, I was very careful that I never took a penny from anyone without trying to give at least 10 times more value back. doesn't mean you always succeed in life. You know, you always succeed at that, yeah. but your my, my mindset is always, I'm looking to give more value than I, I ever would get with every transaction I en enter into, every mentorship I do. So um, I've had tremendous success with people all over the world. And it's great because now it's, you know, the movie became this incredible cult. hit. so it, uh, people come up to me all day, every day I get, you know, Whenever I go out, you know, people just say, you know, you, you, you're such an inspiration to me. You're, you inspire me. Your life, your teachings, your comeback. Uh, it's just amazing. And because yeah, you and easily could have skulked away. You could have skulked away and said, I've been disgraced. And you didn't. You found a new way to reinvent. And you came clean with all of it, too, to your credit, which is how we're all learning now. But I, I have I have to ask you about um, the blowback because I. One of my questions in watching was, how do you have any money? Because they ordered you to pay $110 million in restitution. So do not do they garnish your wages? Like what? Because I know some of the victims, some of the, the people who got burned, uh, this is what I read, left 1,500 clients with $200 million in losses. I don't know if those numbers are right, but did, I know they sort of pop up when you make money and say, this is not right. That, that's, that's not true. That's not, not right. You're trying to be lying, but it's just not, that's not true. Okay. Um, clients don't pop up, which is odd, by the way, because I, the number was wildly inflated. Okay. It was, it was, uh, there was losses, no doubt. Okay. But like when Bernie Madoff, um, they said, what was it, 50 billion that turned to be 10 billion? They, when you're, when they're coming up with losses and, and people, they double, triple count and it, it ends up always being far less. That was an estimate. So in those, it, I only was fine for a hundred million, 110. So what, so, and then it was Danny was 200. It was a moving target that no one really knew what was actually lost, but it was certainly a loss there. And I disgorged a lot of money. Danny disgorged some, some money. I disgorged a lot more. I continue to pay money. Um, and I pay some money each month. I pay some money and I pay a percentage of what I make. And I, I, I said to myself, what's my solution? You know what? I'm going to make so much money that I can afford to pay a percentage and still be rich. And that's what I always aspired to do. And I said, I'm just going to work harder than everybody else. I'm going to make so much money 
that I can afford to pay what I got to pay and still live an amazing life with luxuries. And that's exactly what I did. And Good I just went you. and made And it's money. to their advantage, too, to have you get back on your feet. You've, you found sobriety. You found love. You found yeah, a way of making an honest living. Yeah. And so I only have about a minute left, but I want to ask you, because I know you've said your life serves, serves as a cautionary tale, but others do find it more than cautionary. They find it downright inspirational. So what do you want people to know about the Wolf of Wall Street and the takeaway on Jordan Belfort? The takeaway is, is that my, I think my life represents the best and worst of what human beings can do. And I think that the lesson that you can learn from my life is if you want to model me, especially young people, you want to look at me and be inspired and use the techniques and strategies. Remember, you don't have to model the whole person. You can model all the best things that I did back when I was younger and I do today and learn from the mistakes I made so you can become a better version of me. I always say, you know, yeah, do all the stuff I did on the great side, have fun, make tons of money, but you could do better. You don't have to, you don't have to take shortcuts like I did. And, and that cost me everything. I had to start again. I'm lucky that I had to come back and made back all this money. Most people don't. You're right. Most people will wither away and die. And it's the exception to the rules. So I urge people that you can make a ton of money. We live in an amazing world in an amazing time. But just be very, very careful. But don't take that extra step to make it quick because it might cost you everything. Model the good stuff and do the opposite of the bad stuff. That's my message. Watch that first step across the ethical line. Jordan, what a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on and being so open and honest with us. All the best to you. I want to tell our get our viewers that we have uh, Stephen Crowder on Monday, recently banned from YouTube. Don't forget that and check us out on YouTube.com slash Megan Kelly.